I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, who is executive director of the National Coalition Against Censorship. He's been an activist for free speech for close to a half century. And he is author of the book, How Free Speech Saved Democracy, the untold history of how the First Amendment became an essential tool for securing liberty and social justice. Christopher Finan is my guest today. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, my pleasure, Alexander. It's great to meet you. Great to meet you as well. I wanna ask just to start, what do you see as the relationship uh, between free speech, um, or if you want to say censorship, and privacy with, with the reproductive rights um, or abortion um, seemingly in jeopardy right now? Um, I, I was just curious from that starting point of how you see the relationship between speech and, and privacy, because they, they seemingly are interlinked in a lot of discussions right now. We have fought battles, uh, indeed, over privacy in the, in the free speech world, and most prominently after the 9-11 attacks when the, the Patriot Act was passed. And it authorized, among other things, secret uh, searches of business records. And what that really broke down to in, in terms of a threat to free speech was that um, it wasn't just businesses, it was also nonprofit groups. So, so the American Library Association libraries, um, the American Booksellers Association booksellers could have been compelled to reveal what their customers, patrons were reading, which would have had an enormously chilling effect on um, the uh, willingness of people to uh, you know, to check out or to purchase books that the government might regard with suspicion. So we certainly have, have had those um, those battles. The, the ALA had fought it a little earlier than we did when FBI agents came into the stacks and began to look for Soviet agents. Um, we dealt with it when I was with the booksellers. Um, when um, uh, There was an effort to force Monica Lewinsky to turn over her um, purchase records in a couple of stores in connection to the Clinton invest investigation. So it certainly does happen. The reason, again, that I'm asking you, Chris, is because th there seems to be the suggestion in at least a draft Supreme Court decision, uh, if not what will be an ultimate Supreme Court decision, that the Constitution, our founding birth, basically, our founding uh, grounding as a, as a country, um, and, and, and its interpretations through which we, we live our lives, um, in that draft opinion, um, and possibly, you know, ultimately a real opinion, there's the suggestion that there is no right to privacy, basically, in the Constitution, uh, which is a fairly startling thing to conclude because I think reading the Constitution, certainly interpretations of the Constitution, but even the original Constitution, 
You know, you have the right for your home not to be invaded by, by troops. You have the right uh, not to incriminate yourself. To me, those are rights of privacy. And it comes up again in the context of anonymous speech too, which is so important. You know, there are um, First Amendment protections for the right to communicate without identifying yourself, which is so important to you know, enable people to feel free to say what they want to say. Um, so certainly any blow to anonymous speech, whether on the internet or anywhere else, um, you know, would be a, would, would be a, a big setback for, for freedom of speech. And, you know, of course, just private conversations, even though what my, my job is dealing with speech that, that, um, uh, people are trying to censor because it's public, but, but private conversation, the right not to be spied on, um, you know, the right to, uh, to privacy, I agree with you, is, is directly implicated um, in, in free speech issues. Chris, tell us about the work you do at the National Coalition Against Censorship. What are you involved in right now? Well, right now we're buried um, under the, the book banning um, and other school censorship that, that's taking place. Um, you know, 15 states have passed laws that ban the teaching allegedly of uh, critical race theory. Um, and we have over a thousand uh, challenges reported in, in the last eight months, which is just phenomenal. It's tripled the number of um, challenges that we have faced annually uh, for, yeah, for a whole year um, in many years. It goes, we have to go all the way back to the 1980s um, when just after Reagan's election kind of empowered conservative advocates to, sit, to be able to have anything to compare it to. So um, we're very busy. Um, National Coalition Against Censorship's job is to support parents and teachers and librarians and students who are fighting uh, censorship at the local level and um, we just have an incredible number of um, cases. We're writing two and three letters a day to school boards, um, asking them why they're ignoring their policies for um, you know, formal reviews and just pulling books um, and perhaps uh, not ever returning them to school library shelves and, and to the classroom. So that's about all we can handle at this time. So really, this is not a peripheral or fleeting problem. Um, this is ongoing, and, and do you attribute it to the politics around the 2016 election, or was it happening before then, too? No, as I say, the average, even in uh, the early years of the Trump administration, was maybe three or 400 challenges a, a year. Um, this is something that really took off last fall um, in the, in the run-up to the the, uh, the Senate or the governor's race, I'm sorry, in uh, Virginia, the Virginia governor basically ran on a platform of um, uh, opposing the bluest eye. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it caught on. Um, other politicians began to pick up on it. And now we see um, real chaos in states like Florida and, and Texas. Um, where, you know, this is something that people are running on for the first time. 
parental rights to uh, to censor books in schools and, and school libraries and and public libraries. And what have you found to date to be the most effective advocacy of the First Amendment in the wake of these accusations? Well, I have to admit, um, just between us, that it's probably not our it's probably not the letters that we write to the school boards. <laughs> I could say that you know we're putting ourselves on record and and providing hopefully some content for uh, people who are fighting at the local level, but. We're at a stage where we really are kind of back on our heels, where uh, the other side has a uh, has a lot of the momentum. We've seen this before in many other um, in many other free speech crises. Um, it takes time to organize the opposition, but it is happening. Um, you know, the Texas Library Association has created a, a group called Texans for the Right to Read. Um, the American Library Association is, um, has launched a national campaign called Unite Against Banned Books. And then just many individual parents and students, students are forming banned book clubs um, in many places. And, um, and parents are beginning to circulate petitions to push, to put pressure, opposite pressure on, um, on school boards. Because, you know, and one reason why I think ultimately this is going to be effective is that, that the American people, just, just like the right to abortion, about 70% of the American people are against book banning. So this is really a matter of turning out your supporters. And um, it takes some time to, um, to show them that they're going to be supported and that they won't be out there on a limb by themselves. And that's our job. Our job is to work with other national organizations. National Coalition Against Censorship is 57 national nonprofits in every uh, conceivable field, um, professional groups, religious groups, labor groups. Uh, and you know, our purpose is to, um, you know, to provide a, a um, foundation for you know, those uh, people fighting at the local level. As was pointed out, in a program I did not so long ago, the original Alien and Sedition Act from, from the very beginning of the country, we, we could have gone in a, in a totally different direction. I mean, if, if something like um, sedition, uh, the Alien and Sedition Act had kind of been upheld progressively over time, the idea that, you know, seditious or other um, content would be... Um, subjected to, you know, legal penalty, you, you would be subjected to legal, legal penalty if you participated in any untoward or, you know, uh, seditious speech um, that was, you know, in, in, in the current climate, folks are not talking about seditious speech. Uh, the, the, the way that they're defending it is uh, to say that school children of a particular age ought not be exposed um, to particular ideas uh, during um, a, a period, you know, that, that is uh, too early. Uh, at least that's the way that the argument is being made in Florida, for example, about material related to homosexuality or um, sexuality in general. Um, so there, there is not um, a, a, an argument about censoring uh, the opposition, a, a political party, 
um, it's, it's being uh, proposed again, at least in Florida, on an age basis. So what do you say about the attempts to censor for particular age groups? Well, I'd say, um, first of all, that they, this is a, a huge misrepresentation that the opposition is using to cover what their real aim is. And I think their real aim is to suppress books about race and uh, the persistence of racism, the nature of slavery, LGBT rights. Um, you know, they argue that um, the, the parents have rights and we don't disagree with that. They argue that, um, you know, that <laughs> uh, material should be age appropriate in schools and we don't disagree with that. Sometimes books are uh, mis misclassified and um, need to be moved to a later grade, but that's not really what this is about. This is just an extension of the battle um, to try to save America from homosexuality and um, from so-called wokeness, which is, of course, fight for, uh, for equality. So, um, so yeah, we don't, we don't accept that argument at all. We think it's malarkey, um, but it's the way they, it's, it's the way they um, want to pose. And they, that's why Moms for Liberty is one of the leading you know, leading censorship groups. And as much as they deny it, um, you know, you, you can't find any other explanation for why school districts would be pulling hundreds of books off their shelves, supposedly for review and consideration, um, when what they really want to do is make sure that those books remain suppressed. But, you know, not to, to overly intellectualize it, but I think that in the case of, of the advocates for censorship here, um, the, the opposition to free expression here in, in terms of particular age-based delineations that they're, they're trying to appeal to uh, a certain sensibility uh, of, of a parent, right? I mean, there is a method to the argument, even if it's fallacious or in bad faith. And it is usually you know, from experience, at least historically, the left or the free speech movement that kind of wants to intellectualize something, that wants to kind of think through the nuances of something. And they're, and they're trying to throw a, new, a nuance out there that you're saying, you know, separate from the Florida law, maybe, or even in the Florida law, there, there are other machinations here. It is, it is not as they say it is. And and shifting it from, from the homosexuality piece to the race piece, I, I want to get your, your thought on this because there is a difference between um, critical race theory and teaching the history of racism, right? And, and to, to my mind, it, it's the, the former is, is being used as kind of a Trojan horse to eliminate the latter, right? To use this idea that kids are growing up learning that their race is, is bad and, and therefore we're going to stop teaching about slavery, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the intellectualized um, um, think logic here, right? I mean, the, the idea of, and so 
that's what you're dealing with right now. And I'm just wondering whether it's on the homosexuality issue or on the race issue, like don't free speech evangelists like yourself and others defending the movement have to kind of roll up your sleeves and get into the nuance a little bit more because they're winning as, as odd as it may seem, they're winning the nuance battle right now. Well, they're winning the emotional battle, right? They are, um, they are uh, trying to scare people uh, into believing that their kids are being propagandized and, um, and even in an extreme being groomed. <laughs> there are claims that teachers and librarians uh, are pedophiles and that um, the effort to, to provide books that had deal realistically with sex and gender um, are really, you know, pornography. Um, you know, there's not a lot of nuance on the other side. I have to say, <laughs> I have to say that. Um, and, you know, whereas our argument is, you know, ultimately what the other side is saying is we don't want change. We, we don't want to see kids learning about things that we don't, we don't like about the, the development of our society and the growth of our society. And our argument is, look, this is happening. It's going to happen, you know, whether you, excuse me, whether you succeed in censoring a book or not. And it's important for kids to understand how the world is changing. Um, so yeah, if that's an intellectual argument, that yeah, it's true. That's that's the one we're stuck with. I mean, I'm afraid that in the in the current battle, as you say. Um, like you said, the defense or opposition to the censorship just hasn't lined up yet. It, 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 it's not, you know, if, if this were a football game, they're still on the sidelines and they're not set, ready to defend. Um, I think part of that is not recognizing maybe the scope of the issue because you're suggesting that whether it is the appearance of, of race or sexuality or, you know, other things too, um, you know, the, the, the history of the Holocaust or genocides, um, that, that there is an, an, an ongoing effort. Every day you're getting more letters from parents saying the school board has decided to, to ban X, Y, or Z book. Um, and, and you're saying that this whitewashing of history, it, it's, it's happening and it, it's happening with some ferocity. Yeah, and I, I think people are picking up on that, and they are, you know, they are mobilizing in the ways that I, I was mentioning, and petitions and um, letters to the editor, and but I think ultimately this becomes a, a battle over uh, who's on the school board, and um, it's going to require people to to run against those who are are advocating censorship, and it does take time for people to make up their minds to to make this fight. It's a scary time to be an advocate um, for change. And, um, and um, but, uh, so it's taken a little while for people to find their courage, but they, they will do it. They have done it in the past. This happened in the 1980s. Yeah. Well, I remember also hearing from a professor at the uh, university in Ohio that um, the local dry cleaner was um, putting up posters demeaning her candidacy 
uh, calling her names basically because she was running as, uh, I don't know if she was a PhD, a, a, if you want to say an intellect, an educated person, someone from the academy, someone who's an expert, um, and that that was, that was being, that was a target on her back. The fact that she was highly educated or is highly educated, that a local business lobbied against her. And, and it's likely that these are the kinds of issues on which she or others would vote. And, um, and so how much of, of this uh, is about cultural divide um, and, you know, wanting to be educated in a way that may not be as uh, liberal or open-minded. Um, and, and the one thing we also haven't commented on is in the defense, there is not a lot of exposing of the hypocrisy because a lot of the people who are advocating banning existing or non-existent curricula are the people who, who um, they on social media, you know, they want to be able to express themselves. And they make the argument that the social media behemoths have not allowed them to fully express themselves. So that's another piece of this that I, that, that I haven't heard. So I guess as we close here, the, the two-parter, which is how much of this is just about, you know, some communities are not as open-minded as others, and you're going to constantly have this conflict between different members of community who represent different interests about, you know, what they want to do with education. And then secondarily, uh, this question of, you know, hypocrisy and the fact that the right now, the people who are advocating for the censorship bemoan that same censorship that they say is applied to them on social media. Well, we, we have often seen um, the phenomenon of people uh, protect, wanting to protect free speech, but only for themselves. That's a, that's a through line in American history. Um, and so it is, it is hypocritical. And I do think this is part of a larger cultural war or battle or division. It's existed for many, many years. You know, it was in the 1920s, 100 years ago, you know, that they were banning the teaching of evolution. And um, so it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing battle. It flares up from time to time. Um, and it's really painful when it does. But the ultimate result has been up till now that those attitudes, those ideas, those movements fail, and that, um, and that, you know, culture moves on. And it's my firm belief that that's going to happen again, uh, again, this time, um, even though it's pretty scary right now. I, I know this is a kind of newfound, something maybe you haven't heard often, or that you think is either ingenious or ludicrous. But I, I just wanted to close by asking you about reproductive rights and health and the abortion debate, because to my mind, just as an objective observer, not someone who's taking a side here on pro-life or pro-choice, I think that there's a First Amendment law waiting to be born about reproductive health and that the right to an abortion is actually in the First Amendment. And uh, you don't have to go living constitutionalist, you can go straight to the text and some of the very early precedents to, to maybe think that. And I wonder if to you that is a non-starter or, you know, in fact, a realistic notion. I'm, I'm a little more worried about going back on precedents that we've established than on establishing new precedent. 
you know, the, if they can, if they can change, set a law after 50 years, um, you know, they can keep going back and it's not just intermarriage and it's not just gay marriage. Um, we have a lot of very important free speech precedents that, uh, that protect, um, that protect us today, uh, that may come under fire as well. If the court, you know, continues this very headlong, um, uh, you know, retreat from its previous, its previous decisions. So, but then again, Chris, you have a country and a constitutionalism that says, I'm not concerned about Casey or Roe or Miranda or Brown v. Board or, you know, you name it. Uh, but then you go back to that original document. I mean, I think that's why they're going to be justices, at least in the court's current composition, who win the debate because people just gloss over the, the decisions and they want to go to the Constitution. So I, I guess just point blank, am I crazy or could the First Amendment be interpreted with the right to you know, express yourself as a woman through an abortion? And I, I, it's occurred to me for many years, but you know, now I'm saying it. And I firmly believe it's a legitimate way of thinking, and, and I just wonder if you do too. Well, I'm not. Um, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, you know, I was trained as a historian, and um, uh, so I'm not. I'm not a real um, expert on all the law uh, that's involved. But um, I'm saying I'm asking you this as an expert on free expression. Though I'm saying, you know, is there a way to interpret the First Amendment that gives women the right to choice? I'm happy to take a look at that. Um, okay. I haven't, I haven't seen, I haven't seen it advanced um, seriously yeah. yet, but. Uh, it but comes it, from that same idea though, that when, when Justice Alito and when this airs, he may or may not have spoken for the court in saying that privacy doesn't exist in the constitution. And I would say that while it's not the word privacy, there are examples of privacy in the original document um, and in the Bill of Rights. Chris Finan, thank you so much for your insight and time today. Thanks very much for having me. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.